This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our podcast on intermittent fasting. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Courtney Peterson. Uh, she's a PhD and, and she's a uh, associate professor in nutritional science at the University of Alabama um, at UAB. Uh, and basically uh, she has, she's a well-known uh, author, a well-known researcher nationally and internationally. Uh, she was just awarded, she's the principal investigator of several clinical trials, one of which actually is uh, is going to be probably one of the largest randomized control trial of intermittent fasting in humans, a 344-person study in adults with type 2 diabetes, and it doesn't stop there. She just got awarded two, uh, two grants this summer, and uh, she's, she's unstoppable, a very, very interesting lady with a background of physics. Courtney, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So despite the considerable progress have made over the last 50 years in our understanding of the human body composition, regulation of energy and, and lipid metabolism, the prevalence of obesity is just increasing worldwide. In the U.S., for example, the prevalence of obesity, what we define as a BMI greater than 30 kilogram per meter square, was over 42% of the population just in 2018. Mind-boggling. It is estimated by 2030, 25% of the U.S. population will have severe obesity, what we define as a BMI greater than 40. The greater the BMI, the greater the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and all-cause mortality. And the same applies to waist circumference. So it's well documented that moderate intensity exercise, such as walking 30 minutes, increases insulin sensitivity, improves glucose tolerance and insulin level, even in the absence of weight loss. A daily walk of 30 to 45 minutes in patients with abdominal obesity can lower the risk of cardiac disease or cardiovascular mortality by 50% compared to sedentary obese individual. The American College of Cardiology recommends that the physician should counsel overweight and obese adults with risk factors with lifestyle changes. Even a modest and sustainable weight loss of just three to 5% produces clinically meaningful health benefits. The greater the weight loss, the greater the benefits. Discussing a diet to achieve reduced caloric intake for overweight and obese adults would benefit for weight loss as part of a comprehensive lifestyle intervention. In our podcast previously, we discussed different evidence-based diets that restrict food and, and high carbohydrates, low fibers, processed meat, and, and sugary drinks. This time, we'll discuss intermittent fasting. So, Courtney, please tell us a little bit what is intermittent fasting and, and how does it compare to other forms of fasting? Sure, absolutely. So intermittent fasting is defined as any sort of meal timing approach where you're alternating periods of eating and extended fasting. 
Now, there's not one single definition that everyone agrees on. So historically, we used to define intermittent fasting as any time people fasted for at least 24 hours at a time. More recently, the field has kind of changed and shifted towards defining intermittent fasting as any time you fast for at least 12 hours at a time or longer. I, I sort of like a definition somewhere in between. And the reason why is twofold. Um, so one, if you look at data on when the median American eats, the median American currently eats over a 12-hour period, starting breakfast around 8 a.m. and finishing dinner around 8 p.m. So I'm reluctant to say the median American's already practicing intermittent fasting. And then uh, second, if you look at what happens in the body as a function of the number of hours you've been fasting, we really don't see a big increase in fat burning, such as increases in gluconeogenesis until you hit about the 14 to 18 hour mark. So most of the times when I talk to people, I'll define intermittent fasting as anytime you fast for at least 14 hours at a time or longer. In Europe, they have this um, fasting actually that is really kind of prolonged fasting where you go to some kind of resort and, and mm -hmm. you know, you mostly you, you drink water. How does this compare, you know, to intermittent fasting? I mean, yes. you have to be a special in a special environment. Sure, absolutely. So with prolonged fasting, we usually make a distinction between it and intermittent fasting. And for prolonged fasting, we're typically talking about something like two days of fasting at a time or longer. In a lot of these holistic clinics that practice prolonged fasting or what we have historically uh, called fasting, you're really trying to get to a high production of what are called ketones, which are one of um, the byproducts of burning a lot of fat. And um, that process normally takes about two to three days to see a big increase in those ketones. And typically with prolonged fasting, you're looking to fast anywhere from two days to sometimes a couple of weeks. Um, and then beyond that, you know, um, there are a few people who go beyond that, but I don't necessarily recommend it. I don't think I would it. make it. Yes. And, and I would definitely recommend if you're going to do prolonged fasting to do it under medical uh, supervision for most people just to be safe. So typically for intermittent fasting, you can think of that as any time you fast for about 14 hours to about roughly two days. Great. You touch a little bit on this. Uh, maybe you could develop this a little bit more. How does actually, how does it work? I mean, you, you mentioned the ketones, you need at least 14 hours. I mean, what is the, the basic physiology behind, you know, fasting and how it's beneficial? Sure. Absolutely. So when you eat, um, immediately after you eat, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, carbohydrates in the food that you've eaten that enter your bloodstream. And that, sugar from the carbohydrates is, is broken down and then taken up into your cells. And after about, you know, if you eat a typical meal, typically about four to six hours after you're eating that meal, your body has fully digested and assimilated that meal. After about six hours or so, we think, you know, this is approximately give or take a couple hours. Most people, you know, return to normal. So return to a normal fasting state. And um, during that fasting uh, the initial fasting state, your body starts burning not only the food that you've just taken in, but stored sugar in the form of what's called glycogen, which is stored in your liver um, primarily. There's also some in your muscles, but you're primarily using that glycogen from your liver. And then as the hours pass, so once you get to about you know, 12, 13, 14 hours, your body starts saying like, hey, we burned through a lot of this glycogen, which is kind of our short-term reserve. And we really need to start burning fat because we're getting low on glycogen. 
And so that's when you see the body start burning, for instance, triglycerides, which are stored in your fat cells. So this, you know, uh, fat that's stored in your, in your fat cells, and also even burning some of the protein um, in your body as well. And so that's really when we see an increase in certain processes known as beta oxidation, uh, where you're burning fatty acid chains. And then you also see um, an increase in what's called gluconeogenesis, where you're taking certain amino acids and also glycerol, and you're burning those to produce energy. But the punchline is over time, we see a big increase, a shift from burning kind of short-term carbohydrates that are stored as fuel to once you hit about 14 to 18 hours, we see a big increase in, in burning fat. And then the longer your fast is pro prolonged, the more we see of fat burning. And with that fat bur burning comes a whole host of processes. So your body is now saying, hey, we haven't had food in a while. So it starts to enter these kind of really neat uh, metabolic conservation modes. So it starts doing things like saying, hey, we need to recycle or rejuvenate some of our tissue. Let's increase autophagy. So typically about 12, I think it's about 13, 11 to 13 hours, we start seeing an increase in autophagy. And this is a process by which your cells find worn out proteins in the body and start recycling them to produce new um, sort of uh components or, or new proteins in the body. And we see all kinds of processes that, you know, kind of, um, are your body defending itself. So another example is your body kind of goes into a stress resistance mode. So it does a better job of, you know, sort of, um, saving itself or preserving itself against any sort of molecular damage. So the technical terms that we use are oxidative stress. So we tend to see a decrease in oxidative stress and an increase in antioxidant systems to buffer that oxidative stress. So we just see that the body, you know, it goes into this really smart conservation and rejuvenation mode where you start to see all kinds of improvements in the body. And so one of the key benefits we think of intermittent fasting is because you have these prolonged fasting periods, you're burning more fat which may actually reduce your appetite. Obviously burning fat is a good thing. So there may be benefits for weight loss, but we also see the fat burning itself triggers wide sweeping metabolic benefits um, that basically, you know, may slow the rate of aging and may help you rejuvenate your body. Wow. That's, that's a very good explanation of a very complex, you know, uh, physiological situation here, but basically you have this periodic you know, uh, metabolic switching, you know, that happens when you do intermittent fasting with all kinds of biological benefits that are just, uh, uh, just incredible, you know? Yes. There's some others too. I mean, I could wax for a while on the topic. So another really fun one is, um, we think that when you fast for at least 24 to 48 hours at a time, your body can excrete more sodium which in turn lowers your blood pressure. And in fact, blood pressure is one of the biggest benefits we see with intermittent fasting, that a lot of people with hypertension um, get huge drops or huge improvements in blood pressure. So that's another one that's among the top ones that I think about. And then there's also an anti-aging pathway uh, called CERT1, and maybe we'll talk about that some more later, but there's some data that fasting too as well um, increases um, CERT1, which has been linked uh, quite strongly with lifespan in lower organisms. Fabulous. Um, so there are some different intermittent fasting plans. I mean, maybe uh, you want to discuss this a little bit. I mean, I mean obviously yours actually is is very very special we'll, we'll come to this but you know there's this alternative fasting the time restricted you know eating which was you know what you're a proponent of but a lot of people are skipping breakfast and i guess we could kind of discuss that a little bit more what are the different plans that 
sure. of intermittent fasting and get all these benefits that you talked about. Yes. So there are a number of different types of intermittent fasting and to make sense of sense of them all, I like to group them into three separate categories. The first are your periodic fasting approaches. These are approaches where you fast for 24 hours or longer at a time, some number of days per week or per month. So some really um, straightforward examples of this are fasting for one day a week, which is done in many tradi religious traditions. Another form that has been studied in humans is known as alternate day fasting. And that's where every other day you have a complete 24 hour fast. And one of the things that's really interesting, most people don't know is that the alternate day fasting is the most studied form of intermittent fasting in mice and rats. Uh, so a lot of our knowledge of intermittent fasting comes from that particular type of intermittent fasting, but you can come up with all different scenarios. Maybe you fast two days a week, once a month and so forth, but it's where you have at least, you know, 24 hours of fasting. Your second type of approaches, and some people won't call these intermittent fasting, some people do, so just know there's a little bit of a controversy, are what's called intermittent energy restriction, or IER. <laughs> and IER includes approaches where you eat a very low-calorie diet some number of times per week or per month. And so examples of this would be something called alternate day modified fasting, and that's where every other day you, you typically eat one meal a day and then you fast for the rest of the day. So you're typically eating something like 800 calories, and then you fast for the rest of the day. And this is an approach that Krista Verdi, uh, who's a huge intermittent fasting researcher, made uh, very popular. There are other types of approaches too that are well known. So there's the fasting mimicking diet, which Walter Longo pioneered, which we can talk about later when we talk about uh, cancer, but he wanted to develop a diet um, that mimicked a lot of the benefits of fasting, but without having people undergo a fast. So he developed a plant-based uh, low calorie diet that people will eat typically five days in a row, uh, once a month or, or, or less often, but they typically will eat this diet for five days in a row and they get a lot of the benefits of fasting. And another example of this, which is super popular in England, is known as the 5-2 diet. And this is where you pick two days in a week, either consecutive or non-consecutive, to eat a very low-calorie diet. So there was a BBC documentary, I think it was in 2009, um, by Michael Mosley that uh, just kind of blew the lid off of intermittent fasting in England. So we don't talk so much about the 5-2 diet here in the U.S., but he tried a bunch of intermittent fasting plans and found the 5-2 diet was among one of the easiest for him and um, did a documentary about it. So there are a bunch of sort of um, these intermittent energy restriction programs, but it's any sort of program where you're, you're picking a number of days to eat a very, you know, basically the equivalent of one meal a day. And then your third type of approaches, which I study, are your daily intermittent fasting approaches, uh, which are now known as time-restricted eating or TRE. And these are approaches where you eat in a shorter time period each day. So you're extending your daily fast from dinner one day until breakfast the next day. And you can do that by either eating breakfast later in the day or dinner earlier in the day or some combination of the two. And these are the, these are the types of approaches which I think are most popular now or most people are experimenting with when they talk about intermittent fasting. And this is the type of approach that my lab studies. And the reason why we've been so excited about it, because when we think about all the different intermittent fasting approaches, we think a fair number of them are really hard to stick to in the long term. So they tend to have very promising data up front, 
but then you find a year later, people aren't necessarily still sticking with the five, two diet or other intermittent fasting approaches. So we think that the daily intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating is among one of the kind of um, most feasible approach approaches for most people. Well, um, that's very good. We, we, you know, we see some, I mean, it seems like a lot of people just like to skip breakfast, you yes. know, and we'll, we'll eat from, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, to six o'clock at night, you know, and, and it seems to basically fairly easy to implement in, in a very busy daily schedule, you know. Uh, but there is some data out there in the literature where, you know, so sometimes skipping breakfast is not very, uh, very good for you. And, uh, you know, for example, there are some cohort study that was published in 2019 in, in the American Journal of Cardiology uh, with the association of skipping breakfast with uh, increased cardiovascular and also all-cause mortality. And they looked at these people, and, and it was a cohort study um, that that you know was going on for many many years. I mean, this was like kind of early 1990. Uh, they enrolled about you know, over 6,000 subjects and followed them. You know, 17 to 23 years later, and there were five percent of that population that always skipped breakfast. And it looks like they had you know an increase in, in cardiovascular event, including mortality. But that's not really, and it was like independent of what, you know, even though they didn't record what they were eating, mm -hmm. it was independent of other factors, you know, whether they were, you know, smoking more or whether they were, you know, drinking more alcohol or, or other issues like this. Um, there's this other study also, the cohort, again, study of U.S. health professional, you know, it showed that men who skip breakfast at 27% higher risk of coronary event you know, mm -hmm. compared to men who ate breakfast. And then finally, there's this cohort of Japanese general population that had a, a 14 to 15% increase in, in, uh, in uh, cardiovascular disease as well as stroke. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do we reconcile these skipping breakfast, you know, uh, with intermittent fasting, particularly if we miss maybe the most important meal of the day? Yeah, absolutely. So great question, right? And I think whether to eat or skip breakfast is really controversial right now. Um, but I'm going to walk you through the research and it's really, it's a really neat research. So some of the best research on this is being done out of Japan and Israel. And so people tend to know less about it in the U S so Japan, there are a bunch of researchers there who are doing really fasting, fascinating studies on breakfast skipping where they break breakfast skippers into two groups, those who skip breakfast and eat dinner at a normal time, and those who skip breakfast and eat dinner late. And it's about half of breakfast skippers fall in you know, each of the two categories. Those who skip breakfast and eat dinner late have way higher odds of having metabolic syndrome and of having obesity. So hugely increased risk. Those who skip breakfast, but still eat dinner at a normal time, uh, so not much later than the average uh, person, um, only have a slightly higher risk of obesity and have no higher risk of metabolic syndrome. So it may be, we focused a lot on breakfast and breakfast may be very important, but the timing of dinner and whether and when you eat dinner it may actually be far more important than uh, what you're doing for breakfast. And the reason why is we know late in the evening, when you start to get tired, your body starts to produce a hormone called melatonin in the early evening hours when it gets dark outside. And we know that melatonin is so important for sleep. You definitely want high melatonin levels for sleep. 
But as your melatonin levels rise in your body, your blood sugar control gets worse. And we know melatonin directly causes something called insulin resistance. So it acutely, you know, just makes your blood sugar control worse. So if you're eating at a time of day when your blood sugar control is worse, that may promote more fat storage and also cause more blood sugar problems in the long time. So there's really great evidence suggesting that what you do for, for dinner matters a lot. Um, and it's interesting because we actually started to piece this together in the late 1960s when people were first developing the standard blood sugar test that we use to test people for diabetes or pregnant women for gestational diabetes. They were trying to figure out like, how does these tests work, et cetera. So they did these tests at different times of the day and with different fasting durations and so forth. And the really interesting thing they found is, you know, the test depended on somewhat how long you'd been fasting, but it depended strongly on what time of the day you did the test. So if you do the same blood sugar test in the morning or the evening, people's blood sugar uh, spikes much higher in the evening, despite the fact that you're giving the same amount of sugar in these blood sugar tests. So what we've learned over time is people's blood sugar control is best in the morning. And the best time of day actually seems to be about the mid morning. So have a small, you can have a, sorry, maybe a moderate or large breakfast, um, you know, a large lunch, but it's really the dinner that we're worried about that being large or too late in the day. Um, and the reason why is because you're eating at a time of the day when your blood sugar control is not good. There was also a really awesome study done, gosh, about, I think about a year ago. And I want to say it was Vanderbilt or somewhere around there. I forget the institution where they put people in what's called a respiratory chamber. This is where you measure how many calories someone burns and how much fat they burn. And they found that people who ate earlier in the day burned an extra 15 grams of fat, which is a little more than an extra 100 calories of fat per day, relative to if they ate over the same eating sort of window, but four and a half hours late in the day. So they found that people actually more efficiently burn fat when they eat early in the day. And the kicker for me is there's some really cool research out of Israel testing the old adage of eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. And they've done a number of these studies and shown that people who eat a large breakfast lose um, much more weight than people who eat a large dinner and who eat a light breakfast. Uh, they also are less hungry when they're doing it. So despite losing more weight, they're less hungry than people who are struggling in eating a large dinner. And they have better bl blood sugar control. Um, they've repeated these tests in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And they, in this study, they even forced the women not to lose weight. And they found that they were able to restore fertility in about 50% of women after only three months. So this is huge. So it really seems like, earlier in the day is better. Um, so, you know, uh, breakfast skipping may not be quite as bad as long as you're not eating dinner late, but we're very confident that if you skip breakfast and eat dinner late, then, you know, that's a problem. Now, one of the unknown questions for us is yes, it looks like eating earlier in the day is better, but what we know is you have a circadian clock system in the body. Um, and you can think of every organ and tissue in your body as having its own kind of clock that ticks. And we group these clocks into two sort of large systems. One is the clock in your brain, which is kind of like your conductor clock. And this clock's time zone is set by when you get bright light exposure. So this is the basis of jet lag or how you adapt to different time zones. Um, but we also have clocks in the rest of the body. We call those peripheral clocks. And one of the main things that sets their time zone is the time of day that you eat. So the punchline is you have these two clock systems, their time zones are set by different factors. So if you're eating out of sync with when you're usually getting bright light exposure, so when it's normally daylight outside, 
it's as if your clock systems are in different time zones. So they give conflicting signals to your metabolism about whether to rev up or to rev down. And this is kind of the scientific basis for why we think it even makes sense in the first time, what time of day that you eat. Um, the really interesting thing is if you do a short-term like one-day study or week-long study where you say, should you skip breakfast or not? And you measure someone's blood sugar levels over a 24-hour period. All the studies that have compared skipping breakfast and eating two meals a day versus eating three meals a day spread out throughout the day have found that it's worse to skip breakfast, at least from a blood sugar perspective. However, that doesn't give enough time for those circadian clocks in your body to adapt. So we don't actually know if that's true in the long term. Because what if someone adapts over time to skipping breakfast? You know, the body tries to adapt to kind of anything you do. So my lab is actually doing a study right now to answer exactly this question. So we're actually enrolling um, participants in the study right now. So we're looking for people who have obesity. And we're going to try, we're having participants try the daily intermittent fasting of the time-restricted eating both early in the day and late in the day, and then comparing that with three meals eaten throughout the day. So we're going to see, like, do you get most of the same benefits if you do the time-restricted eating, but late in the day, or is that worse than eating throughout the day? I don't know, but I'm really, really excited uh, to do that. And if I don't know if any of your listeners are interested in participating in, in the study, but if they are, uh, they can give us a call at 205-484-5633. But we hope to have a clear answer to that question in about two to three years from now. Fabulous. Very, very interesting. And you make a good case for the circadian cycle and, and how we should be maybe sticking to breakfast um, and eating less at night for sure. Uh, what can we eat during intermittent fasting, Courtney? I mean, I would, you know, it's like if you kind of can you eat like what kind of food do you recommend in your study, for example? Right. So um, usually when people refer to intermittent fasting, uh, there's not a specific like eat this food, don't eat that food. Typically during your fasting period, you don't want to eat anything with calories in it because that'll break the fast. So we you normally think of coffee's okay. Um, although that's a little controversial, I will say not everyone agrees. Certainly we, no cream, no sugar. Correct. Exactly. So no cream, no sugar. Um, but usually, you know, tea, unsweetened tea is fine. Water is fine and so forth. But, you know, no juice, no milk, um, et cetera. Some people do drink low calorie vegetable broth during their fast. And we don't think that's going to majorly disrupt your fast. So if that's helpful for you, go ahead and do it. And generally the most important thing advice I can give people is not to think that intermittent fasting will solve all your problems. We still think what you eat matters a lot. And in fact, in animal studies where they have both changed um, the healthiness of the diet and the time of day that the rodents eat, it looks still like what you eat is more important than when you eat, but when you eat is also hugely important. So I still recommend that people eat a very healthy diet. Um, obviously, there's a lot of controversy today over what is a healthy diet, but you know, I think core principles, unprocessed food as close to its natural state as possible, um, including lots of plants, but it certainly doesn't have to be exclusively plant-based. And it looks like a fairly wide range of macronutrients. So whether it's higher in fat or lower in fat um, can all be helpful. Sounds great. So, you know, if we look at the benefits of intermittent fasting, obviously weight, you know, the, the weight is one of them, the weight loss. What other, uh, what kind of weight loss can we expect in the regimen of intermittent fasting and, and what are the benefits can we expect maybe? Yeah. So one of the, I guess, best known benefits is weight loss. 
Um, so in some of the, what I think of as the more extreme forms of intermittent fasting, say every other day, you're having a full 24 hour fast, people can easily lose five, 10, 15% of their body weight over, you know, three to six months. Uh, so we can see actually hugely rapid weight loss with a lot of these plans, uh, for the time restricted eating, which is where you eat in a shorter time period each day, we're seeing a little bit more modest weight loss. So typically about one to 5% weight loss over about three to four months, um, still really important effects, uh, but just less, you know, more steady weight loss. And those plans seem to be equivalent to about reducing your calories by about 200 to 300 calories a day, sometimes more. So that's kind of the benefit that you're getting. One of the other things we find with the intermittent fasting is one of the reasons why we think it's good for weight loss is it helps with hunger. So we find that it makes your hunger levels sort of more even keeled throughout the day. And so you're eating less naturally. So it's kind of a more natural weight loss. So there've been a number of studies now. So in the field of time-restricted eating that I study, there have been about, I guess, about a little over three dozen studies now. And many of the studies, you know, went out to people and say, hey, just try time-restricted eating. Don't change what you eat or don't worry about changing what you eat. And people just naturally lost weight. And so I think that's really exciting for us. And in one of my studies, we actually measured one of the um, most important hunger hormones, uh, a hormone known as ghrelin. And we found that uh, ghrelin levels were reduced and it was actually a really big effect. So we were pretty excited about that. I mean, it was an even larger um, improvement in the hunger hormone than we thought. So there is sort of molecular data that backs up what a lot of people are reporting, which is like, hey, I'm just not as hungry. Uh, one of the other reasons why we think people may not be as hungry is that also when you're in a fat burning mode, you don't have these highs and lows in your blood sugar that kind of trigger hunger. So what's interesting is when you eat a lot of refined food, you know, your blood sugar will spike. And then as it crashes down again, there are what we call counter-regulatory hormones that stimulate to eat you to eat. And the reason why is because your blood sugar is falling rapidly. So your body says, hey, we don't want our blood sugar levels to fall too low. So we're going to, you know, secrete or release a bunch of hormones to make you hungry and eat again. So when you're in a fat burning mode, you just miss those highs and lows. Um, so there's some natural sort of hormonal processes there that we think help. There's also been, I guess there've been about maybe eight studies in humans suggesting that people may burn more fat when they do intermittent fasting, uh, more fat than sort of conventional dieting. Um, and we don't have a clear answer yet on whether intermittent fasting does help you burn more fat. We have a study right now that's being reviewed where we do find a, a fat burning effect, at least in people who can stick with the program. So we think there might be a small benefit in help you in helping you burn a little bit extra fat. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like if you're in a, if you're, if you kind of force your body into a fat burning mode for a longer period during the day, uh, you know, um, you may burn more fat. One of the other benefits that we see a lot in these studies are improvements in blood pressure. So I mentioned earlier that with the extended fasting, that kind of gives the body more time to get rid of sodium in the body. And there are a bunch of sort of electrolytes that are involved in that sort of process. But the punchline is your body's able to secrete more sodium and that lowers your systolic and diastolic uh, blood pressure. And the benefits we're seeing are on par with the DASH diet, which is one of the most popular and best known diets for treating hypertension, also on par with the effects we see from exercise and also on par with the effects we see from some blood pressure lowering medications. So these are pretty big and material effects. So we're, we're quite excited about that. 
The data on heart rate has been a little bit more, less consistent, I should say, but some studies suggest there may be a benefit for heart rate. The other big area where we see a lot of these intermittent fasting studies report benefits are for glucose and insulin levels, especially insulin levels. So quite dramatically, you know, a number of, of studies have reported improvements in insulin and insulin sensitivity. So insulin is, you can kind of think of it as your blood sugar hormone. It helps trans, uh, transport glucose out of your bloodstream and into your cells. And we find very rapid imp improvements in, in glucose and insulin levels. So my lab did a study a couple of years ago where we took people, uh, we took men with prediabetes and we had them try the time-restricted eating. And in my lab, I study early time-restricted eating where the eating window is early in the day. So we had these men um, eat in a six-hour period early in the day. Everyone was done eating by 3 p.m. and they fasted for the rest of the day. And what we found is after only five weeks, we improved their insulin sensitivity by about uh, a quarter. So big improvements. And they were just much better able to metabolize glucose. Um, and the kicker for our study is we did that when we did this study, um, we had them not lose any weight. So a lot of these studies with intermittent fasting, you know, you lose weight and you're like, well, of course, if you lose weight, you're going to see benefits. But we were the first to show that there are benefits, even if you don't lose weight which suggests there's something special about the meal timing patterns and intermittent fasting that have benefits. It's not just because you're losing weight. Like there really is something special or intrinsic to intermittent fasting. Um, the data on cholesterol levels is a little bit more all over the place. We don't really know the degree to which intermittent fasting improves cholesterol or triglyceride levels or lipids. Um, we certainly see improvements when people lose weight, but we don't know if there are any special benefits if people don't lose weight. Courtney, um, in line with this LDL, and, and I'm thinking about metabolic syndrome, uh, you know, and abdominal fat and visceral fat. You did some studies measuring visceral fat in these patients, either by MRI or, or CT. Yes. So we just completed a study where we measured visceral fat. We have not measured it by MRI or CT, and I don't know of any study that has, but we used what's called DEXA. Uh, DEXA, which is a sort of standard x-ray technique for measuring fat, how much fat you have and muscle you have. And it, and it provides an estimate of how much of that visceral or bad like belly fat people have. And we did not find a statistically significant change. Um, there was a small decrease, but it just it just didn't um, we weren't able to prove that it definitely did did that. That said, in that same study, we measured overall trunk fat, so the trunk in the whole abdominal region, whether that's good fat or bad fat, and we did find that the time-restricted eating reduced trunk fat. So it, lo it did lowered overall belly fat, but we weren't able to prove that it lowered the bad belly fat. Decreased that weight, the waist circumference? Uh, not This waist circumference wasn't quite statistically significant in our study, but the trunk fat was. Right. And we think we think of the trunk fat as being a little bit more accurate than waist circumference because waist circumference, you only measure at like, you know, the narrowest part uh, of, of the waist rather than looking at the whole uh, trunk area. And then there have been some great studies showing some um, improvements in um, physical performance or endurance um, in elder adults. Um And we have also done some studies looking at different biomarkers of aging, and we have found that the early time-restricted eating increases markers of autophagy, so that cellular re recycling that I mentioned. So it increases a certain molecule called LC3A, uh, 
um, which is an indicator of how much autophagy there is in the body. So we do see evidence that it may help rejuvenate the body. And we also see an increase in CERT1, which is anti-aging molecule that predicts lifespan in a lot of species. So we're pretty excited about that as well. Did you see some studies also that describe, you know, this, uh, you know, particularly in the elderly, you know, we see a lot of times some balance issue, uh, coordination, and even with memory. I mean, it seems like it, you know, it would help in those areas as well. Yes. You know, there hasn't been much research in people on um, balance, coordination and memory, but absolutely in rodents, when they've studied these things, the rodents do much better on memory tests. They do better on motor function tests um, that involve like balancing, for instance, on a spinning kind of <laughs> device. Uh, so the rodents do much better and we see all kinds of benefits for physical function, um, motor function, cognition, aging. So all kinds of, uh, um, um, related things in rodents. Yeah. I think Walter Longo and we'll talk about, you know, him later on in, in aging has done a lot of research in that. I wish we were rodents sometimes life yes. would be a lot easier, maybe. Yes. Uh, yes. So Courtney, how can we apply intermittent fasting clinically? I mean, you talked about your study, for example, on, on obesity. Now, these were not diabetic patients, right? Correct. They were patients with prediabetes. We currently have a study right now in patients with diabetes that we just started. So if, if anyone's interested in enrolling that study, we're definitely looking for people and they can call just quickly say the number again, they can call us at 205-484-563. And we're trying the time restricted eating as a treatment for type two diabetes. So we're, we're really right. excited about that. Most of these studies though have been maybe just kind of a short, you know, studies like three months or six months or even a year. Uh, and, and the studies are a little bit mixed, you know, I mean, there are yes. two recent studies, for example, where, you know, there was refer reversal of insulin resistance, which is great, particularly if yeah. you're pre-diabetic or diabetic. Uh, there was one study on alternative, you know, fasting that showed no difference. I guess, well, you know, I think it's, it's a field that is very, uh, you know, <laughs> rich in studies, you know, at this time. Uh, it's a very exciting, you know, field. And I think we'll have some answers maybe in a few years, as you said. Yes, I think so too. What we're seeing for some of these more extreme forms of intermittent fasting is people can follow them for the short term, but not the long term. So for instance, there were two one-year studies of what's called the five, that five-two diet that I mentioned earlier. And at the three-month mark, people had lost more fat and more weight on the five-two diet, but one year later they had not. And what they were able to figure out, the researchers were able to figure out is after a while, people just weren't sticking with the diets anymore. So all those weight loss benefits vanished. So, you know, generally from, you know, how do we apply intermittent fasting clinically? I would say, you know, if you have patients who, are, who have morbid obesity, so, you know, huge amounts of weight to lose. I think some of these more aggressive intermittent fasting approaches really make sense. So that's where maybe your five, two diet or your alternate day modified fasting makes, makes sense. Cause these are diets where you're really eating one meal a day, you know, two to three and a half days a week. Right. So this is going to be hard for the average person, but maybe for someone with a lot of weight to lose, like this, this could be a great match. But I think for most people, for those who are, you know, just somewhat overweight looking to maintain their weight or just have a healthy aging practice. I think the time restricted eating is just a better way to go. We're just getting data suggesting it's just way easier for people to follow, right? Cause 
you don't have to cut calories or count calories in the same way. So with a lot of these other intermittent fasting approaches, there's a specific caloric target you're trying to meet, right? So like eating roughly like 800 calories, some number of times per week, but with the time restricted eating, you're just eating in a smaller time window. And so you're not counting calories. And so the biggest thing you need to watch is just the time. Um, and so it becomes like a really simple rule that people can follow. And also because it's not so extreme, you have, you have much more freedom to pick, you know, do you want to cut calories with time restricted eating or not? And you can decide, do you want an aggressive calorie cut or not? Um, so just in general, there's just so much more freedom and flexibility with the time restricted eating as opposed, opposed to all these other intermittent fasting approaches that that's why I'm uh, most bullish, bullish about that approach relative to anything else we're studying. Like, I really think this is going to be something that people can practice lifelong. Many people, not everyone, but many people can practice lifelong. Whereas I think most of these other intermittent fasting approaches, we're just going to find people just can't stick with it, you know, after a year or two. Well, I can see that it would be a kind of a nice way, particularly if you're overweight or, or even diabetic, and you know, particularly if you're supervised by your physician. Now, obviously, I'm a cardiologist, so I'm trying to see what are the cardiovascular benefits of intermittent fasting. And the Cagliari study, I think, was very revealing. Uh, they just cut down, you know, maybe um, 200, you know, calories, and they were these were healthy individuals, and they were not even overweight, uh, but they were able to really, you know, they have a 12, you know, just a 12 percent reduction of calories for over two years, and improve their cardiovascular risk profile. And that we talk about blood pressure, LDL cholesterol you know, even uh, the clearance of, um, of uh, a C-reactive protein, less inflammation and everything. So, you know, I think your study, you know, should be very important. Uh, the one where you're comparing the calorie restricted uh, with intermittent fasting um, should be very interesting to see. I hope you measure cardiovascular risk, you know, in that study. Yes, we, we absolutely are. So just to give your listeners a little bit of backstory. So we've known for probably about 90 years now that if you cut your calories quite dramatically, say 20, 25%, even more, at least in these um, studies in animals, we extend the lifespan of those animals dramatically. So by eating way less, these animals are living way longer. So um, one of my uh, former mentors, Eric Ravison, did a study called the calorie study to see like, hey, does caloric restriction work in people? And can we slow the aging process in people and extend lifespan? So they did a study in people. It was a two-year study where they asked people to cut their calories by about 25% to see if they could improve different, what we call biomarkers of aging, but different you know, um, different indicators of how fast people are aging. Now, interestingly, in the study, people were only able to get to half the calorie cut they were supposed to. So they got to about 12% instead of 25% over the two years. But nonetheless, they saw improvements in many aspects of aging, including of oxidative stress levels, I believe also cortisol levels, um, you know, weight loss, some improvements in their cardiovascular health and so forth. But the biggest drawback, right, is really hard for people to stick with it. And with the time-restricted eating, people tend to naturally cut their calories. And, um, and so we know anytime you cut calories, there are health benefits from that. But moreover, from the time-restricted eating, um, um, Rafael de Cabo at the National Institutes of Health did a really phenomenal study a couple of years ago where he showed that about 40, at least 40% of the life-extending 
benefits of calorie restriction are actually due to time-restricted eating, not to reducing calories. And he was only able to put a lower limit on it. So while we thought calorie restriction was causing life extension, and it probably is, but a lot of those benefits are in fact due to time-restricted eating. And we now also know with time-restricted eating, at least when practiced earlier in the day or not too late in the day, it has benefits independent of whether you cut calories. So, you know, now that we know there's this fantastic data showing that time-restricted eating extends lifespan in animals, so why not try compare it to the calorie restriction where people were struggling to stick with it and see what can people stick with in the long term? So I'm part of a collaboration, and we think we'll probably get funded, um, so we're just waiting to hear back the final news, but we'll be comparing calorie restriction versus time-restricted eating for slowing the aging process in humans. And we're going to look at everything from, you know, weight loss, um, cardiovascular um, risk scores. Um, we'll look at blood pressure, 24-hour glucose levels. We'll look at the effects on muscle mass, right? Like, you know, because calorie restriction causes people to lose a lot of muscle mass. You know, do people do better on time-restricted eating? And then we'll look at a bunch of really cool sort of um, what's happening in the body on a molecular level. So, Probably some of your listeners have heard of things called telomeres. So these are the ends of your DNA. And we know the shorter the ends of your DNA, uh, usually the shorter your lifespan um, or your remaining lifespan. And so we'll be looking at how um, calorie restriction and time-restricted eating affect telomere length or those telomeres, oxidative stress in your body, stem cell production, senescent cells, and um, all the nine sort of molecular um, hallmarks of aging. So we're really excited about it. Really fascinating. I think I'd like to sign up for that study. You know, we have a lot of patients that are on Medicare. They're they're older than 65. And, and I see some patients, for example, uh, that, you know, appropriately so trying to cut down the calories, uh, but they're in their late 70s or 80s. And, and I'm concerned that sometimes we're, you know, they get into this, you know, lower calorie, uh, you know, lower you know, muscle mass. Uh, increase in the weakness. You know, they feel like some of them feel like I'm getting a little weaker, more fatigue easily. Um, I guess it's there's a balance, and there's there's some you know how much you can you know, restrict calories. Really, you have to be using. I mean, there's a judgment call probably in some of these elderly patients. That's right, and. Walter Longo, who we talked about earlier in the context of that fasting mimicking diet, has also done really interesting work looking at how protein intake changes with age. And it looks like once you hit the age of about 65, it looks like people do better on higher protein. So about 20% higher than what uh, younger adults do. And then below that age, people tend to look have better, um, better health, so less chance of cancer, diabetes, et cetera, when they have lower protein. So it's a, it's an interesting um, paradigm, but I think you're absolutely right. Right. We don't want people to necessarily restrict their calories too much. And in particular, it, you know, once you get around 60, 65, yeah, it looks like you really need to increase your protein intake. Yeah. Because then you have the problem of increased frailty and, yes. and, uh, you know, falls and so forth. So I, I can see obviously other benefits, you know, the, with uh, intermittent fasting and decreased calories, neurocognitive improvement, decreased arthritis, decreased asthma. And what about cancer? I mean, can we make our our body uh, maybe a little stronger to fight cancer? I mean, there's something about what intermittent fasting and the fasting does to cancer cells and starves them, you know, yet able to get our 
cells a little stronger. Uh, if, I know this is very controversial. How do you how do you want your cancer patient that are undergoing chemotherapy to actually go into a fasting you know period prior to uh, getting under chemotherapy? Walter Longo has been working on this, but you have also some uh, interesting insight into that that issue as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some really, really cool data showing that fasting, when you combine fasting with chemotherapy, you get this big improvement in terms of killing the cancer cells. And so if you, and there've been a number of studies in animals that if you just give the animals chemotherapy, you know, they, they die at a small rate. If you just give them the fasting, they die, you know, the, the, um, I should say the tumor cells die at a small rate, but if you combine, if you start the fasting first and then give the animals the chemotherapy, they almost all survive. And it's amazing. And it looks like what happens, they've been able to tease apart what's going on. What the fasting does is it, it causes what's called a differential sensitization response in the tumor cells versus the healthy cells. And what that means is in the healthy cells, when you put the healthy cells on sort of a fasting program, they say, hey, oh my goodness, there's not a lot of glucose around. I need to go into survival mode. I need to protect myself. So I'm going to increase all my antioxidant systems and I'm just going to go into protection mode. When your tumor cells are put in that same fasting environment, they just, they can't activate the same protective uh, mechanisms. And the reason why it's because they have oncogenic mutations and quite ironically, the fasting makes them because they're still trying to like burn energy at such a high rate. So tumor cells have roughly 16 times the metabolic rate of normal cells. They're still trying to burn all this energy. They can't go into protective mode. And so they generate a huge amount of free radicals. And then along comes the chemotherapy, which is this huge, like, um, like chemical insult or a huge stressor on both the healthy and the tumor cells and the tumor cells, they just died an even faster rate because the fasting has primed them to produce all these free radicals. And, and so they just die at a way higher rate because they weren't able to enter protective mode. But meanwhile, healthy cells are like, well, I was already in protective mode, so I can just better withstand the effects of chemotherapy. So we get this differential effect. So tumor cells die at a higher rate and then healthy cells survive better. Um, so it's fantastic. And then the clinical outcome from this is it looks like that fasting prior to chemotherapy or radiation um, produces fewer side effects or what we call adverse events, but fewer side effects because the body's better able to withstand the stress of the chemotherapy. And meanwhile, we see there's some evidence of slightly greater tumor regression. So Walter Longo really deserves, you know, really most of the credit in this area. So I want to give credit where credit's due. So he did a lot, a lot of fantastic work in animals and even in humans. Now, when he did a lot of these fasting studies in humans, um, unfortunately, he found only about a quarter of people were willing to fast prior to chemotherapy. So it was pretty low. And he was only asking for a two-day fasting period because it's really once you get to two to three days of fasting that you see these huge benefits when you compare fasting with chemotherapy. Plus he's using the, the fast mimicking diet, isn't he? I mean, so He is now, exactly. So he was finding people weren't willing to do two days of complete fasting. So that's when he developed his fasting mimicking diet. So you don't do a full fast, but you do you eat a very low calorie diet that's supposed to mimic a lot of the benefits of fasting because he found patients were far more likely to do that. And they just finished a study in Europe in breast cancer patients. And they it wasn't a slam dunk, but they did find some evidence of greater tumor regression in the patients who were doing the fasting mimicking right. diet. 
Um, it's controversial, right, though, for cancer patients for a number of reasons. One, cancer patients, um, many of them lose too much weight in the first place. And so you don't want to necessarily force them um, to lose more weight. Um, and then just going through cancer is exhausting physically and otherwise, and you need, you may need a fair amount of protein to, um, you know, maintain your muscle mass. Um, but anyways, my lab is working with a team of scientists at, uh, Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles to test, uh, time-restricted eating as a treatment in rectal cancer patients. So we're going to test this differential sensitization response and see if we can lower the side effects of chemotherapy with the time-restricted eating and then also increase tumor regression. And we're going to look at some of the uh, like underlying molecular mechanisms as well. Um, so we're really excited to do this study. Fantastic. Well, I mean, uh, is intermittent fasting, is it safe for everyone? So a uh, great question. Um, we think it's safe in most adults. Um, and let me give you the caveats that are really important. So generally, if someone has a pre-existing eating disorder, it may not be a good match. So I would not recommend intermittent fasting for those who have eating disorders. I also don't recommend intermittent fasting in children or adolescents. And for me, I even would not recommend it in college age students. And the reason why most women finish all their growth spurt by the time they enter college, but men don't. So there's a small proportion of men who are still growing and developing and like still growing in height in their early twenties. And what we know is that intermittent fasting slows down the rate at which cells grow and divide, which is fantastic from an anti-cancer perspective. Not great if you're still growing and you haven't reached <laughs> your, your full height. So to be really conservative, I don't recommend it until about your mid-20s. Um, and again, I'm just being conservative, but I wouldn't want to give the wrong advice. And then we don't recommend it during pregnancy. Um, obviously, again, because, you know, um, it, it slows down the rates at which cells grow and divide. One other caveat, patients um, who have diabetes, if they're on a class of diabetes drugs called sulfonylureas, those those particular drugs make you more prone to what's called hypoglycemia. So we just caution that if you do try intermittent fasting and you are on a sulfonylurea to work with your doctor, so your doctor can make sure that you're safe. I think that's good. I mean, do you think, uh, and probably in pregnant women, you don't recognize, I mean, you don't recommend that. Correct. We don't recommend it in pregnant women to be conservative as well, again, because it may slow down growth. So obviously, intermittent fasting can be, you know, a, uh, a lifestyle change, I mean, definitely. Do you think this is something that you, we can do lifelong, some form of, or another? Yeah, so I think, I think most people can do probably the time-restricted eating if your schedule permits, right? So sometimes you just can't eat at work. You're not allowed to eat at work. But if you have the freedom to do to eat at certain times a day? Yes. We're finding in our studies that most people are able to stick with it at least five days a week, which is awesome. Uh, usually they'll take the weekend as a break. Um, but we, we did a 14 week study and we found no, we found people were able to stick with it five days a week, nearly the entire time. And, um, and there was no sign that, um, they were less able to stick with it with time. For some of the more aggressive intermittent fasting approaches, I think those are really truly better for weight loss or for short-term sort of benefits, but not, I think those are just going to be too tricky to follow 
in the long term. And then for those who are like listening to this podcast and thinking I can't do intermittent fasting, I either can't control my schedule or I have kids, right? So I, I have a daughter too. So not always easy, right? Um, I recommend for those individuals, there are other meal timing approaches that have benefits. And the biggest advice I can give you there, if intermittent fasting, it just isn't a great approach for you to try just making breakfast and lunch your biggest meals of the day and make dinner your smallest meal of the day. Well, everything we want to know on intermittent fasting and beyond, it looks like very, very interesting research um, in the works. And um, the next two or three years, you know, would allow, you know, for us to really discover, again, some wonderful benefit of this, um, you know, form of eating. Uh, certainly, we tend to eat too much. And uh, this is one way to maybe reduce the calories and, yeah. and maybe live longer. Yes. Yes. And, and just to end on that too, I mean, even though we think intermittent fasting has just wonderful benefits on your health, um, we also just think it does simple things like curb mindless eating, right? Like if you just need to eat during a certain time and you can't snack outside of it, you're not going to sit down in front of a TV and, you know, eat popcorn or, or whatever that is. So um, we, we think it actually has a lot of benefits, um, but watch this space. There is some conflicting data. And then hopefully in a couple of years, we'll have more clear results on some of these issues. We'll follow this address, Courtney Peterson at the University of Alabama. Thank you very much for everything, you know, and thanks for sharing some of the research. Yes, thank you so much. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.